little phantoms, and welcome back to Phantasmic, hosted by yours truly, Lady McCall. This week's episode is a bit special for me, mainly because this is my first Halloween special. All three stories tonight pertain to the infamous Jack the Ripper. Of all the murderers to go down in history, it is still, to this day, widely debated as to who Jack really even was. And with so much intrigue, writers are bound to write short stories showcasing their best, or in some cases most fun, guesses, tales of what if, and or shining some light into those, you know, little pieces of history that time forgot. I was so glad to have uh, stumbled upon a book on sale titled The Mammoth Book of Jack the Ripper Stories, edited by Maxim um, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced your name, but uh, Jacobowski? I I tried. Um, (laughs) But true to its namesake, the book hosts 40 unique dark tales written by various authors. And I'll admit, I'm still not done reading all the tales myself. But these three stories I'll be reading for you tonight are by far some of my favorites. So sit back, drink some water, grab a snack, because we're in for one long, spooky night. To start our descent into Jack the Ripper horror story rabbit hole, I'll be reading Martha by Columkill Noonan. And yes, I am actually reading out of the book. So excuse me. It was 2.45 a.m. on Friday, 31st of August, 1888, and Martha Adams sat miserably on the corner of the bed that occupied the better part of the room, which she let along with her man, John, at the lodging house on Flowers and Dean Street. But it was her friend, Emily Holland, not John, who sat on the chair opposite her. It was Emily who sat with her, and as it so often was nowadays, because John was out late, as he was wont to do, leaving Martha alone, worried and wondering, until Dawn's light brought him stumbling home, drunk. But tonight, Emily was not there to merely sit with her friend as they waited for John to come home. Tonight, Emily had news for Martha, and it was this news that had caused Martha to gaze dejectedly, first at her friend, and then at the near-empty bottle of gin that she held tightly hand. The lodging house was a pitiful affair, drafty and dirty and dank, replete with vermin and fleas and dissolute drunks. In other words, it was exactly like all the other lodging houses on Flowers and Dean, neither nicer nor more run down. The name of the street was sadly ironic, for there were no flowers. Nothing bright or cheery or pretty to ameliorate the dismal air of desperation that permeated the ramshackle buildings, which leaned precariously over the uneven old cobblestones. Really, to even call Flowers and Dean a street was somewhat ambitious, as it was in actuality little more than an alley, as were so many of the streets in the corner of London's East End, known as Whitechapel narrow and twisted, and the profound darkness of its shadowy quarters at night gave shelter to all manner of nefarious deeds as well as the 'er ne'er-do-wells and scoundrels who committed them. Scoundrels, as Martha had suspected, and was now finding out for certain, like her own man John. For Emily had just told Martha that she had just come from Osborne Street, where she had run into her friend Polly Nichols, and 
as Emily had concluded her conversation with Polly, made her goodbyes, and began walking up the street towards her own room, she had turned back to utter a word of caution, for Polly had been out prostituting as usual, and as usual had drunk away all of the money she had earned. But Polly, eyes bleary with drink, had told Emily that she needed only one more man in order to pay for a room for the night, and Emily, good friend that she was, thought it best to warn Polly that she had heard of attacks on women occurring lately in the area. So far, no one had been killed, but two women had been stabbed quite gruesomely, and Emily thought Polly in no condition to protect herself as drunk as she was. As she turned to warn Polly, however, she had seen John, drunken and staggering and wearing a lecherous leer on his face. Coming up to Polly. The two had spoken for a moment, and then, leading heavily on each other and giggling, zigzagged their way along the dark street towards Buck's Row, a place that Polly, like many of the local prostitutes, often chose to serve as her customers. Emily, seeing this, had known that Polly had thus secured her lodging money for the night. Further, she had known that Polly would be safe with John, or as safe as anyone could be out on the streets in the wee hours of the morning in Whitechapel. So, she wasted no more time worrying for Polly's safety, and instead rushed to tell her friend, Martha, what she had seen. The news, while not entirely surprising to Martha, nonetheless came as a heavy blow. John had been her man for nigh on three years. During their time together, he had always been a drinker, but so, for that matter, was Martha. No, Martha did not so much mind his drinking, so long as he did it at home with her. But in the past few weeks, something had changed, for John had begun going out in the evenings. Oftentimes now, he stayed out until dawn, when he would crawl, stinking with drink, into the bed where Martha had lain awake and worried with suspicion throughout the long night. He turned to Martha less and less often to fulfill the needs of a man for his woman, but perhaps most distressingly was the sudden dearth of money for their household needs. Never had the two of them had much. He a day laborer, she a seamstress, both took work where they could, and rarely had they been able to do much more than just get by. But always there had been money for lodging and food and of course drink, until John began staying out all night, that is. Now, the money needed for their basic necessities had run short, and Martha found herself scrambling to make ends meet. What Emily was saying now, what the missing money was being spent on prostitutes such as Polly, certainly made sense to Martha, and though she had suspected that such might be true, to have her fears enunciated, made real in the words from the mouth of her friend, filled her with pain and shame. At last, a burning rage. Martha felt herself flush with humiliation, and she lowered her eyes to stare fixedly into the bottle of gin that she held tightly in her fist as Emily tittered on and on, animated with the excitement of delivering such a terrible yet delicious bit of gossip. At last, seeing that Martha did not even appear to be listening to her remarks about the depredations of man in general, and the shocking disrespect shown Martha by John in particular, Emily's prattle tapered off. Discomforted by the strange demeanor of her friend, 
as Martha sat staring into her bottle, as immobile as a statue, Emily fidgeted uncertainly for a moment. She was no longer enjoying her role as the deliverer of bad news, and wondered if she ought to leave Martha sitting there with no further ado. Her decision was made for her when Martha looked up suddenly. Her eyes seemed to look through Emily instead of at her. Go now, rasped Martha, her voice not entirely her own. But it was the look in Martha's eyes, more than her words, that rattled Emily, caused her to rise suddenly and make for the door. For the eyes that had frozen Martha's heart at the telling of Emily's story shone in her eyes. Black in the dim light of the dingy room and utterly devoid of any emotion save for cold fury. Martha's eyes appeared to Emily as soulless as those of a dead fish. Looking into those eyes, thought Emily, was like staring into the cold pits of hell. As she hurried out in all haste, it wasn't until she was halfway down the street and certain that Martha, with those dreadful eyes, wasn't behind her, that Emily's unreasoning terror abated. Crazy old hag, she muttered, resentful now that her erstwhile friend had shown so little gratitude for the news that she had gone out of her way to tell her, and had instead scared her half-witless to boot. No wonder John needs some softer comfort with the likes of Polly. I bet Polly don't look at nobody with crazy dead eyes like that. As for Martha, there was no further thought spared for Emily once she had left the room. She took a deep swig from her bottle, finishing it, and let the warmth of the gin diffuse through her body. Rather than calming her, though, it seemed instead to further ignite the animus that she felt towards Polly. How dare that trollop, that dissolute tramp, use her sagging, wrinkled old body to steal that which belonged to Martha, namely her man and the money that should have been spent on food and Martha's own drink, rather than the disgusting favors of a pox-ridden whore. No, Martha could not abide by the insult of this for another moment, and she made her her mind to seek out Polly and have it out with her. So thinking, Martha rose and strode purposefully out of her room, down the stairs, and out of the lodging house onto Flowers and Dean Street. She walked quickly down the narrow street, outrage and anger making her sure-footed despite the gin-fogged state of her body and mind. She made several turns onto ever-narrower alleys and passageways until she came at last to Buck's Row. Not seeing Polly, she hesitated a moment, confused as to what to do next. Where could that whore have got to? She muttered aloud to herself, but then she heard a low, guttural grunt, as though from a man achieving satisfaction. Quickly, she made off towards the sound, hoping yet dreading to catch John and Polly in the act. She rounded a bend in the street, and was disappointed yet relieved to spy Polly a few feet away, leaned up against a brick wall with a man who was not John in the process of disengaging himself with her, from her. The man was short, where John was tall, he wore a mustache, where John was bearded, and he wore a fancy sailor's hat, whilst John disdained such frippery. The man smirked as Martha approached, tipped his hat to Polly, and slipped away into the shadows behind the wall. 
Polly, straightening her skirts, began to utter a greeting to Martha, but in her husky voice, Martha imagined that she could hear the tone of smug condensation of a woman who had just seduced another woman's man, and thus felt herself superior. Anger overcame her, and she lunged for Polly. The last thing she remembered was stumbling, beginning to fall onto the ground, as she called out, Don't you ever touch my man again, you filthy whore! For the gin that soaked her brain overcame her, and a cloud of blackness obscured all thought. When Martha awoke, she found that she was laying atop the small bed that she shared with John. Someone, presumably John, had removed last night's dress, and she wore only her shift. Mid-morning light oozed into the room through the dirty wax paper window, but even its weak cheeriness seemed to stab at her throbbing, aching brain. John was busy dressing himself, but turned to her when he heard the low groan that escaped her lips when she tried to rise. The expression on his face as he looked at her was full of disapprobation, sadness, and a touch of disgust. What happened? She croaked, her throat scratchy with dehydration. How did I get home? Shh, he replied tersely. Never you mind that. But Polly, she began. He raised a hand, silencing her. He then made his way to the door and opened it as though to leave, but stopped and turned to her before going. You gotta stop drinking so much, Martha, he said, shaking his head. You don't act right when you're in the bottle. So saying, he stepped out into the corridor and closed the door behind him, none too quietly, causing Martha's groggy head to ache and throb even more. Some time later, when Martha had recovered somewhat and had even managed a few bites to eat, Emily stopped by. Did you hear? Emily said, her eyes sparkling with the excitement of the sordid news that she was about to impart. About Polly? Martha's interest was immediately piqued. Knowing Emily as she did, she quickly deduced from her manner that something quite horrid must have happened. What about Polly? She asked impatiently, a sick feeling forming in her gut. She vaguely recollected the events of last night, and Emily's words seemed to stir some sort of memory in the depths of her brain, but the exact nature of it remained elusive. What, Emily? She demanded. Out with it, now! Emily savored the deliciousness of her secret a moment longer, and leaned forward excitedly. She done been, she began, then paused for dramatic effect, looking from side to side, as though to see who else might be listening, even though they were alone in the room. She done been murdered, she finished at last. Martha gasped and stared at Emily, mouth agape. Emily, thoroughly enjoying herself, nodded emphatically. They found her body this morning, all chopped up like slashes here, Emily made a slicing motion across her neck, and here, now making the same motion across her belly. As Martha's initial shock subsided, she began to feel a touch of self-righteous satisfaction set in. Well, she hummed, seems to me like she got what, just what she deserved. You sell your body like that, you break up families and steal people's men, well, one day it's bound to catch you up. Emily stared at her, confused and somewhat disappointed by her reaction. She had expected shock and horror, or at least some degree of fear and outrage, but not this callous indifference. 
So she made her goodbyes to Martha and headed out in search of a more satisfactory audience. Next Friday night, Martha found herself once more sitting alone in her room as John did not come home yet again. Midnight came and went as Martha speculated and worried and raged by turns. Clutching her bottle of gin to her breast, she drank more and more deeply from it as the minutes marched inexorably towards dawn and John still had not returned. Finally, as 5 a.m. came and went, impatience and drunken outrage got the better of sense and Martha headed out to search for her wayward man. However, she was not relieved when at last she found him. Quite to the contrary, actually. For as she turned a corner onto Hanbury Street and made her way along the darkened twists and turns, she heard the unmistakable sound of John's voice whispering in the dark shadows. A woman giggled and Martha crept closer. Her stomach lurched with a queasy, jealous feeling as she came closer and the two people became clear to her vision in the dim light. There stood John, leaning closely in to none other than Dark Annie, a prostitute known throughout the East End to have syphilis and to be quite mad from it. Martha's thoughts began to spiral out of control as she beheld her man in what was clearly the initial stages of a sexual transaction. Why, she thought, does he need these filthy women? Why did he prefer their diseased bodies to her own? Dark Annie was yet another drunkard, fleshy and bloated from the drink, utterly worthless as far as Martha was concerned. So why then was her man preparing to fornicate with this disgusting creature against a garden fence in this sleazy alley? And paying for the privilege, no less. Filthy, filthy whore! Martha screamed as rage took over her mind. Faithless, sinful man! She moved forward, thinking to thrust them apart, to stop this travesting that was occurring right before her very eyes. But the world spun and grew gray around the edges, and then Martha knew no more. She woke up the next morning in her own bed, with John sleeping soundly beside her. She stirred, hungover and nauseated, and unable to remember anything that had happened after she had seen John and Annie together. Panic set in, and she shook John awake. Did I stop you in time? She asked feverishly. Did you have relations with that whore? His eyes fluttered open, and he looked tiredly at Martha before sighing deeply. He began to rise, but she forestalled him by grabbing onto his arm, her grip like iron in her desperation. Did you do the deed with Dark Annie? She demanded. I deserve to know if you've got the syphilis or not. No, Martha, he answered resignedly. I ain't got the syphilis. He paused and looked upon her with the same expression that he had the week before. I can't keep picking up after you like this, you know. You're not yourself when you've had a bottle. Well, Martha responded peremptorily. Mayhaps I wouldn't drink if my man weren't cavorting with prostitutes all night. And you're lucky I saved you from that pox-ridden whore. So saying, she turned her back and listened to the sounds of him getting dressed and leaving, and at last fell back to sleep. And it wasn't until later that day that she heard the news. Dark Annie Chapman had been found in the early morning, dead, her body mutilated and cut in much the same way that Polly's had been. Martha heard the news, wondered 
if the gap in her memory obscured some knowledge of what had happened, and then shrugged. It was nothing to her what happened to another whore in the East End. The world was better without women such as that anyway. After that, John played the dutiful man for weeks. He came home early and curtailed his drinking, and Martha dared to hope that this unpleasant interlude in their lives had passed. Then, one Friday night, John was once again late and coming home. Martha, half a bottle of gin warming her belly, at last went out to look for him until the early hours of next morning, but to no avail. Martha, half a bottle of gin warming her belly, at last went out looking for him until the early hours of the next morning, to no avail. But, as she at last gave hope and went home, made her way down the hall of the lodging house to her room. Hoping that John might be inside, she noticed that the neighbors were casting strange glances at her, then covering their mouths to whisper and titter as she passed. At last, she grabbed one by the arm, a woman by the name of Ellen, and demanded to know the cause of this. Ellen prevaricated, blushing and looking wildly towards the others in the hall for help, but everyone had suddenly bethought themselves of other places to which they must immediately go, and had thusly taken themselves hence in all haste. Impatient, Martha gave Ellen a nasty pinch. Answer me, girl, she hissed. It's just... it's that... Ellen stammered nervously. Out with it then, Martha demanded, pinching Ellen again. John were with Elizabeth Stride last night, Ellen blurted out last. You know, what stays in the room upstairs? Martha released the girl and strode away, embarrassed and angry. She promptly took herself to the nearest tavern, where she spent her food money on a fresh bottle of gin. Nursing it, she walked the streets of Whitechapel for hours, becoming ever more drunk and despondent. She tried to fight her growing anger, but the gin gave fuel to it, and at last she gave in. Oh, how she hated these women, with their decaying teeth and wrinkled faces, their sagging breasts, their gaping woman parts that they used to seduce her man. She wondered if he were with one even now. Perhaps if he was with Elizabeth, or maybe that dreadful Kate Kelly who was always batting her eyelashes at men and trying to wheedle money from them. At last, she came to her last gulp of gin, and as she downed it, she decided that she must confront Elizabeth, teach the chit a lesson, tell the slut to keep her hands off her man. Swiftly, she made her way back to the lodging house. However, she had downed two bottles of gin, with no sleep in between, and before she even reached Flowers and Dean Street, she felt the comfort of the alcohol's oblivion taking over, and remembered no more. She awoke some time before dawn on the stairs inside the lodging house, arranged in such a way that she was unsure if she had passed out on her way up to Elizabeth's room or on her way down from it. Groggily, she lurched downstairs to her own room and climbed wearily into bed. She was still too drunk, however, to either see or to care if she had seen the glint of suspicion in John's eyes as he watched her, nor did she much care when she awoke and John told her that Elizabeth had been found dead in her room, her throat slashed, 
Further, Kate Kelly, who had lived just up the street, had been found as well, her body horribly mutilated. Her ear had been chopped off, and her intestines pulled out and draped over her shoulder like a gruesome sash. People now feared a, a habitual killer, and the cases had taken over the collective imagination of the populace. Everyone talked of the brutality of the murders. What animus, what twisted hate drove a person to such deeds? The people of Whitechapel, indeed of the entire East End, were horrified by it, and delighted with their horror at the same time. The people could not get enough of the story, and the newspapers were happy to feed their appetites each and every day. But, as John spoke of this to Martha, he, she simply shrugged, uncaring. What of it, she thought. I don't even know if I made it up there, or if I saw Kate either. So that was that, in Martha's mind. And she felt better knowing that yet two more sinful tramps had gone down from Whitechapel. The place was lousy with women such as them, after all. And now there were too few or too tempt her man, she thought with satisfaction. Too long had those women traded their disease-infested bodies for drink, and too long had stupid, weak men fallen prey to their sordid charms. It was about time someone did something about it. Where was you last night, Martha? John asked quietly. Oh, here and there, she replied tartly. I'm serious, Martha, he said. Answer me. Maybe I was where you was the other night, she spat. Maybe I was socializing with the likes of them tramps you're so fond of nowadays. Don't joke, Martha, John growled warningly. You do things when you drink. Things that ain't funny. Ain't funny at all. You think I done? She hesitated, gesturing vaguely to the places on her own body that were analogous to the knife cuts on the bodies of Elizabeth and Kate. You think I done that? She shrieked. Well, you don't remember nothing now, do you? And there were that time last year when you done got so jealous and threatened that one lady with her own scissors. You was right scary then, Martha, and I ain't stretching the truth none when I say so. Well, said Martha in an aggravated tone, that was different. I didn't do in that lady with the scissors now, did I? Just made my point is all. So don't you never accuse me of doing such things again, do you hear me? So saying, she turned her back and busied herself with tidying up the room, thereby ending the conversation and also hiding her face from John's view. She didn't want him to read in her eyes the thoughts that whirled wildly in her mind. What if, in her gin-addled state, she had given in to her jealousy and rage? What if she were the murderer everyone in Whitechapel so feared? She didn't think herself capable of such atrocities, but Jean was right on two points. She didn't remember things when she was drunk, and she had been known to indulge her anger, sometimes quite violently, when the drink was in her. Uncomfortable with the way such thoughts made her feel, she shook her head, dismissing them. It was no use speculating on what might have happened, or on what she may or may not have done. If John would stop with the trollops, there would be no problem. Yes, she decided, the whole situation was entirely John's fault. John sighed and left the room without another word. With him gone, she stopped pretending to clean and 
instead picked up the daily newspaper that John had tossed carelessly to the floor. She couldn't read very well, but she liked to look at the pictures, and she could make out enough of the words to get the gist of the headlines at least. There on the first page was the picture of Mr. Lusk, whom Martha, along with everyone in the neighborhood, knew as the president of the Mile End Vigilance Committee. The prostitutes of the East End resented Mr. Lusk for his efforts to bring Christian morals to bear on the brothels, because as the brothels closed under the pressure exerted by Lusk and his friends, the women within them were displaced onto the streets and alleys where they were easy prey for the rough and lawless men, including the killer whom the papers had dubbed the Ripper. Of course, it was for this very reason that Martha approved of Mr. Lusk very much. In the print above Mr. Lusk's picture, Martha, squinting as she slowly sounded out the words, could just make out that Lusk had received some sort of letter from the killer. This letter was the latest of several that had been addressed to Mr. Lusk. Along with Mr. Lusk, the newspapers and even the police had received dozens of letters in the past few weeks, purporting to be from the killer. Most of the letters were probably hoaxes, but nonetheless, each one printed by the papers caused a great deal of excitement as residents of the East End picked over them line by line, trying to glean some clue from them as to the identity of the murderer. The text of this most recent letter to Mr. Lusk was printed there on the page, and Martha, struggling to read it, picked out a few words. As best she could tell, the letter said something about a kidney being mailed to Mr. Lusk and was signed from hell. Well, thought Martha, there you had it. She knew that she herself hadn't written that letter. Indeed, she could scarcely read it. Therefore, any doubts that she may have harbored as to the extent of her actions on the nights of the murders, when her memory failed her, and she remembered only feelings of anger and righteous outrage, must of course be unfounded. But most people said that the letters sent to Lusk, the newspapers, and the police were most likely fakes, practical jokes, perpetrated by sick-minded people who endured during a panic or by journalists looking to build a sensational story, was a thought that Martha found it convenient to disregard. No, any suspicions that she had about herself were now firmly put to rest. Satisfied, she put down the paper and went about her day, and guilty thoughts troubled her conscience no more. Meanwhile, whilst Martha was thus occupied, John, out and about in Whitechapel, crossed paths with Martha's friend Emily, the two greeted each other and made the usual polite small talk about the weather and mutual acquaintances and such. Soon, however, Emily turned the conversation to the subject of Martha and her strange reactions to the news of the murders, which so occupied the thoughts of the residents of the East End, particularly the prostitutes who suddenly found themselves fearing the very men from whom they needed to solicit business. Most people were horrified and frightened by the murders and if they also thought to be just the slightest bit excited and titillated, well, that could be excused as a natural morbidity that was simply part of human nature. But Martha's reaction had seemed very unnatural to Emily, smug and self-righteous. Martha had shown no evidence of compassion or sadness at the news of the deaths of women whom she had known her entire life. To Emily's mind, 
Such unfailing nonchalance was incomprehensible. It most certainly was not the way one responded to such things, even if one disapproved of the women to whom these things had occurred. In fact, when Emily considered how little Martha had cared when she heard of the murders, and reflected on Martha's soulless eyes that had so scared her, she could almost fancy that Martha herself was the murderer. After all, John had been with all of the victims, and Martha had most certainly known of each tryst of his, as secrets were hard to keep in the East End. No, it wouldn't surprise her at all if it turned out that Martha had killed those women, and she determined to ascertain John's thoughts on the matter. With that thought in mind, Emily told John of her conversations with Martha, and of Martha's strange attitudes. John, hearing of Martha's cold, dismissive behavior towards Emily, grew quiet and stroked his beard pensively. Emily, sharp-eyed and ready, as always, to glean gossip from whatever source she could, considered his reaction. She was surprised that he did not immediately speak out in Martha's defense, but rather simply stood there in the street before her, looking troubled. This, of course, stoked Emily's suspicions of Martha to even greater heights, and she strove all the harder to pry whatever information she could from him, that she might have all the more delicious tidbits to disseminate among all her friends. Where was Martha those nights the girls were killed, she urged, leaning forward to press her bosom against John's arm as though by accident, that he might be more inclined to share Martha's secrets with her. But John just sighed and shook his head. I don't know, he said sadly. I just don't know. I know she was mad at them, she prompted. John nodded, noncommittally. John, gasped Emily, purposefully breathless and batting her eyes up at him as she leaned in even more closely. You don't think it were Martha that done them in, do you? She whispered, her face the picture of concerned innocence. Gently, John extricated himself from her grasp and moved away a step. No, no, he replied, not meeting Emily's eyes with his own. Of course not. No, if you'll excuse me. With that, he turned and walked off briskly, leaving Emily to wonder. True, he had denied that Martha was the killer, but he certainly hadn't looked as if he was at all certain of it. In fact, it seemed rather more like a man who was trying to convince himself of his woman's innocence instead of a man who knew that she was guiltless without a doubt. To Emily, the idea that John so much as doubted Martha was enough to convince her of Martha's guilt. But rather than rush off to speak of this with everyone she knew, Emily found that she was too nervous to even think of mentioning it. If Martha was the killer, Emily reasoned, it would not do to provoke her. So, for once, circumspection held Emily's tongue, and she remained quiet on the matter and spoke of it no more. So, too, did John. If he watched Martha closely while she painstakingly read the paper each morning, looking for news on the Ripper, if he wondered at the avid interest she took in the speculations of the reporters, as though she were searching for some clue to solve a mystery only known to her, he flinched every time she spoke of another woman with a tongue sharpened by jealousy, he said not, but kept his own counsel instead. As for Martha, her interest in the case became merely obsessive. She devoured each badly written letter that 
purported to be from the Ripper, hating when the syntax sounded like her own cockneyed speech, sighing with relief when the writing seemed beyond her own limited capabilities. And as the weeks went by and the Ripper remained quiescent, so too did Martha's vigilance over the paper's quiet and did John's own vigilance over Martha. At last, John felt that perhaps the ordeal was over. As he relaxed, the call of drink and novel feminine companionship became too strong to resist, and John slowly returned to his carousing ways. In response, Martha also turned once more to her bottle of gin, and once again began to find herself waking up with no recollection of the night before. Such was the case of one morning in early November. John had not come home the night before. Martha, three sheets to the wind, had gone out in search of him. She vaguely recollected finding John near Miller's Court. Things grew hazy after that, the flow of time became disjointed, and it seemed that her memories were not in their proper order. She recalled confronting him, remembered slapping his face in anger, remembered him saying to her, This has to stop, Martha her own reply, I ain't done nothing. But she had no idea to what exactly the conversation had been referring. Had he been with another prostitute? Had he resisted her attempts to bring him home? Nor did she know in what order these events had occurred, or what, if anything, had happened in between. Nevertheless, despite the argument and the gaping holes in her memory, and her throbbing head, she felt somewhat cheery when she awoke the next morning alone in her room in the lodging house, and she sang a little tune to herself as she made ready for the day. song, to be sure, but Martha skipped about the room as she sang, a small smile lifting the corners of her mouth. She was still happily singing and flitting about the room when John burst in, brandishing this morning's newspaper like an accusation. Do you see? he growled, shaking the paper in her face. Is this what you've done? Her cheery mood faltered in the face of his anger. Done what? she asked, confused. Done and Mary Kelly, that's what, he yelled. Of course not, she protested. I was with you, weren't I? John sat heavily on the bed and slumped dejectedly. Well, I think so, he said, calmer now that he had now that she had denied his accusation and enabled him to doubt his worst suspicions. I know you was mad and yelling and cussing up a fit, but I don't know where you was before. She huffed, putting on an air of aggrieved dignity. I most definitely weren't out doing in another of your tramps, that's for sure. I just don't know, Martha, he said sadly. I don't know if you even know either. I don't like to think you could have done them things, but... You got a nasty streak in you that comes out when you're in your cups. I don't rightly think I can take it no more. 
with that, he stood and made to leave. But Martha blocked his way. You rotten whore, son, she screamed. After all I'd done for you, all I put up with. And how do you expect me to pay for lodging fee if you leave me? You'd make me destitute, scrounging up bed money by using my body like them whores you like so much. John reached into his pocket, took out a fistful of coins, and pressed them into Martha's hand. A few dropped onto the ground, and as she bent to pick them up, he darted around her and made his escape. You'll be back, she cried after him. Let's hope I ain't got myself a better man than you by then. She then hurled herself onto the bed, weeping hysterically. She didn't grieve so much for the loss of John, that poor chasing bastard, as she did for the loss of financial help, as well as for the blows to her pride, that he should leave her, when by rights it should have been the other way around. And the accusations he had made were simply outrageous. But a small worm of doubt crept into her mind again. Were his accusations so outrageous after all? It was true that John had been with each murdered girl shortly before the Ripper had gotten to them, and it was also true that on each of the nights that the Ripper had struck, she, Martha, had gone out in search of them, dead drunk and in a blind rage. Further, on each of the nights in question, there were disturbing gaps in her memory. Might she be the Ripper after all? She shuddered with horror at the thought, for though she felt that the Ripper had done the world a service by removing those low-life trolls from it, so did she feel certain that, righteous or no, the absolute brutality of those murders would surely condemn the perpetrator to hell. No, she thought, pushing her suspicion aside. If she had done the murders, surely God couldn't hold her accountable if she didn't remember. And besides, if she had done anything violent during her blackouts, it was really more John's fault than hers. If he hadn't been out whoring, she wouldn't have to drink and search him out, and then she wouldn't be left to wonder like this. Her logic pleased her, and she resolved to question herself no further on the subject. She nodded her head sharply, as though to punctuate her decision, and smoothing her skirt, made herself busy once more. And as she went to and fro about the room, the song that she had sang earlier rose to her lips. song, yes, sung by many all over London, but it was also the last song that anyone had ever heard Mary Kelly sing, just before she was silenced forever by the Ripper's cruel blade. Of course, no one heard Martha singing, and Martha herself put the matter from her mind, and resolved to think of John and his horse no more. Her resolve lasted for nearly a year, as she quietly struggled to make ends meet without the benefit of John's income, and was therefore too busy and distracted to spare much thought to John and his doings. She still partook of the bottle, yes, but never so much as to forget herself. 
Her fortitude was shaken, however, when a chance encounter with Emily stirred up her latent anger and sent her reeling back to the bottle. Emily had, for the most part, avoided Martha since their last meeting, generally felt uneasy at the mere thought of her, but time had dulled her anxieties, and as the weeks and months went on and still the murderer did not strike, Emily began to think that perhaps she had overreacted in having suspected Martha of being capable of such atrocities. So it was then that Martha hailed Emily on the street one Tuesday afternoon. Emily stopped to chat amiably with her one-time friend, and as the women talked, Emily found herself unable to keep to herself the latest bit of gossip that she had, namely that John had taken up with a woman named Alice. Martha, who had thought herself well rid of John and better off without him, felt the news like a physical blow. Her belly felt as though she had swallowed a bucket full of hungry worms, nasty, slimy things that chewed and gnawed as they fed on her insides. She realized that she had thought all along that John would come calling back to her, begging for her forgiveness, but now, this Alice woman would ruin it all. She felt a hot flush of rage creep up her neck to color her cheeks as she considered the audacity of this woman who dared to take what was rightfully hers. Emily watched as Martha's countenance changed and quickly remembered what it was that she had feared so about her. The darting eyes, the twitching hands, the snarling lips. These were the signs of a madwoman. Hastily, Emily made her excuses and hurried away up the street, glancing back nervously as Martha stomped off to the nearest tavern to purchase a bottle of gin. Within the hour, as the sun set and darkness overtook the east end, Martha had consumed enough of the gin. Within the hour, as the sun set and darkness overtook the east end, Martha had consumed enough of the gin to be quite drunk and not entirely in command of her faculties. She knew only that she was in pain and enraged. She knew further that the source of this pain and rage was the woman named Alice. Therefore, she set out to find her in order to assuage her emotions. As she didn't know exactly who Alice was, Martha determined that her best chance of finding her would be to find John. She called at the lodging house where she had heard that he stayed recently, but found that he was out and that no one knew where he had got to this evening. So she began to wander about Whitechapel, drinking her bottle and asking passers-by if they had seen him, and if they knew of Alice. No one could or would tell her anything, however, and so she continued to wander, drinking and becoming ever angrier as she grew frustrated in her search. Eventually, Martha found herself on Pynchon Street, particularly Rundown Street that ran beneath the railroad. As she approached Back Church Lane, she passed beside the stone arches that supported the train tracks. There, leaning against the stone, was a man. Good-looking, too well-dressed for this neighborhood at this time of night, he doffed his hat to her and smiled. His blue eyes crinkled charmingly at the corners, and his blonde mustache framed his full lips to their best advantage. Despite herself, Martha felt herself flush, and she giggled like a schoolgirl at his greeting. Hello, she said shyly, batting her eyes in a ludicrously drunken attempt at flirting. Hello, pretty lady, he said. What's a pretty creature such as yourself doing wandering about alone at this time of night? 
Oh, you know, I can take care of myself, she replied, trying hard not to slur her words. She found herself attracted to this handsome stranger, and thought that perhaps, with his help, she could forget all about John for a time. So she smiled as coquettishly as she was able, and licked her lips seductively. But if you're worried for me, you could walk me home. The man simply continued to look at her, his eyes taking in her body that had gone a bit soft, her teeth that had gone a bit yellow, her once pretty face that had gone a bit haggard. She tittered and fluttered nervously under his close regard, and he laughed at her discomfiture before his smile turned into an ironic smirk. Martha paused, uncertain. It suddenly seemed to her that that smirk was familiar, that she had seen it before, but where? Her drunken mind was slow to recollect. The man moved forward, and he took her by the arm. I'd be happy to walk with you, he said, as his fingers gripped her flesh somewhat too tightly, causing needles of pain to break through her drink-fogged thoughts. You was with Polly that night, she burst out, suddenly remembering where she had seen the man. Wasn't you? He pulled her face to him, holding her closely, his mouth only inches from hers. Guilty, my dear, he said. Does this bother you? Martha thought for a moment. On the one hand, she was revolted by the thought of another man who partook of the horrors of Whitechapel, but on the other hand... It would feel good to take something that had once been Polly's, just as Polly had once taken something that had belonged to her. And the man's presence was commanding. Her body responded eagerly to the sentiment, so close to her, and to the feel of his mustache tickling against her lips. So Martha tilted her head back and invited the stranger to kiss her. As she did so, too late did her mind process what she should have seen in an instant. Because yes, this was the man who had been with Polly. He had been with Polly on the night that she was murdered, and now this same man held Martha closely in his embrace. She stiffened and pulled back. Who are you? she asked, hoping that there would be a reasonable explanation from this terrible coincidence. Where are you from? I'm Jack, my sweet. He said, laughing as a predatory glint came into his eyes. He opened his coat and pulled a wickedly sharp blade from within. And I'm from hell, my dear. I'm from hell. What an interesting perspective. No? Personally, I think this writer was able to portray the betrayal of a woman scorned rather beautifully. At least, I can certainly put myself in our main protagonist's shoes for this one. The urge to drink until you forget all your problems. I know it well. Many others are still struggling with this call for fair reasons, so this is my civic duty to remind you all to drink responsibly. I care about your well-being, so please take care of your liver and by not overindulging. PSA over. Thank you for listening. And now that that's out of the way... Let's read another new perspective of the time. Kosher by Michael Gregorio. Many men had known them girls, but one man stole their lives away. I was living in Castle Alley in those days, just off Aldgate High Street, right in the middle of the doing, so to speak. 
You've no idea what it was like down our way, lest you've been living there for a bit. Whitechapel's a regular cesspit, and no two ways about it. Full of Irish navvies, factory hands, weaving girls, half-day laborers, immigrants, con men, drifters. All the scum that London's bustling with these days. Apart from the foreigners, Jews like me for the most part. They've up from the country, most of them. Plus the train loads of scruffs scarpering from Birmingham, the towns in the north, what with the iron and cotton industries being shot. Now what are they all going to do in London? It's obvious, isn't it? If they can't find work, they turn to betting on the street corners. Find the lady, a dick's game. They get themselves in debt, of course, and then they need to go out thieving. That's what a chap does, anyway. But if you've got a fanny between your legs, there's easier ways of making a bit of cash to scrape by on. The coves you find down our way after dark, they're even making a joke about it these days. We've gone that far down the road to perdition, as the Sally Army soldiers call it. They don't know what they're on about, that lot. You can't preach God and sobriety to girls like them. They don't give a carsey. They just get on with business, which is blooming now that things are settling down again. But let me tell you about it. The joke, I mean. The other night, before stopping off for a swill at Middlesex, me and the lads were strolling west on Aldgate High, stopping now and then to chat with girls we knew, or, or to look at the pictures in the photographer's cards. You know, the big glass display cases they hang outside their workrooms, showing off the best of what they've done, likenesses they've taken, or once they've nicked off some other snapper. I do like looking up the rows of pictures, but you can't stop long for all the gathering the callers blast you with. Step inside, gents. Tin type gem cards, six for Bob. Split the cost three ways if there's three of you. Four pence each, two likenesses apiece. Or one for the miserly three-penny bit. It's enough to drive you mad. There's loads of them all over the place. They stand in the doorways, hawking for customers. While you're looking at the pictures in the cards, often enough, you end with one of them shouting in one ear while another one's giving it his best down the other plug hole. Then it's time to move on. I don't waste my money on pictures as a rule. Where was I? Oh, yes, the joke. So, there we were on Aldgate High, parked outside this photographer's gaff, looking at the likenesses in his card. It was me that stopped them, Charlie and Georgie, two mates that worked with me down the Feigenbaum's yard. Because I saw that they wasn't just the usual pictures you see. The usual is all these boring faces. Tom, Dick, and his brother, Bert, all with the same white collar, tie, and sanctified smirk on their horrible gobs. This set of pictures was different altogether. They were laid out in a sequence, telling a story one after the other, like you read in picture books. There's this pretty young girl being courted first, getting wet, then getting bored. Next thing, this young tumbler's climbing out of the front window, while her hubby's trying to be in the front door. The last one really caught my eye, though. The joke I was telling you about. The same girl, standing outside a different door, the big sign that gives the game away. You can't see all the signs, but you know what it says. You've seen them signs a million times before around here. It should say warehouse, but the only bit you see is where. And that's where she's standing. Standing still, as any street girl knows, is against the law. 
malingering with intent, as the peelers call it. Well, that's obvious to anyone, isn't it? What happened to me? You've lost your husband, you've lost your home, and your name. There's only one place left for you to go, if you're a girl, that is. That was Mary Jane Kelly's story, more or less. She was living with a bloke called Joe, a brickmaker, skilled laborer, something similar when I first met her. A good-looking lass she was, long hair hanging down over her shoulders, sometimes red, sometimes ginger. Depending on how long ago she'd had it hennaed, strong drink was Mary's problem. A pint of rum, a pint of port, it didn't matter. Give her a pint, she'd drink it straight down. Tell you her name was Emma, Jenny, or something else. Then tell you to bring her another one quick. Strong drink would make her laugh a bit, then scream and shout, kicking up a rumpus all over the place. Even with her mates. Even with a working man like me. Might have paid a shilling or two for a night of it. If you ask me, that was what done for her. Him. And drink. Drink the bar dry she could, and walk a straight line to the door. This Joe of hers, Joe Barrett, Barnett, something like that, had given her the push, told her to sling her bloody hook, get lost, and not come back no more. Mary Jane was out on the street she was, all on her own, except for her mates of the game. The game was all she had by then, of course, though if she'd been out on the streets a dozen times before by her own admission, it always started with the fella, she said. She'd hook him, wet him, shack up with him. Her husband had died down a coal mine, I seem to recall, though she might have been spinning me one. The next thing, she'd be out on her air, walking the streets at dead of night, dying of thirst, looking for any old cove to buy her a pint of something, give her six pence and a mattress to sleep on. I've let her share my mattress more than once, I must admit, but she wasn't up to much. Drink does that to a girl. It takes the fire out of her. Things got worse when the killing started down the east end. She knew them all, did Mary Jane, the dead ones like. Friends of hers, she said, but maybe it was just a clever way of getting a chap interested than squeezing a drink out of him. It was funny, really. Well, not funny at all. And some poor girl had to pay the price to put an end to it, I suppose. But it started as a lark when we saw her there that night. We were down the Alma one Friday, same as every Friday, me and the boys. Straight out of the yard, with pay in our pockets. Me, Charlie, and Georgie. When Mary Jane came rolling in through the door, she was high as a kestrel, but most of them are on a Friday. Who ain't on a roll when there's guilt about? We had the next day off, it being the Shabbat, so every Friday night, we had a few. And being bachelor boys, few led to a good few more. Next thing, in comes Mary Jane showing off her bare tits to some man who must have given her the eye twice too long. Two minutes later, she's sitting on his knee with a pint of mother's comfort in her fist and her tongue halfway down his throat. She's gonna cop it, Charlie said behind his hand. I bet me wages on it. There'd already been four by then, and we'd known all of them, at least by sight. Hang on, though. Let me get this thing straight. I'm no great storyteller. As you probably realized, so maybe I'd better start telling you a bit about us before I go any further. Charlie, Georgie, and Harry, that's me. Them's the names we use when we go out rollicking on Friday nights. Saturdays, we've got other things to do. A synagogue, for one, and Sundays are working day. But they aren't the names we were born with. We work for Abel Feigenbaum down in Spidalfields. 
Remember, and there ain't no mistake in a name like Feigenbaums. We're kosher butchers, all three of us. Well, kosher slaughterers, really. Abraham, Ephraim, and Israel. That's me. But everyone down the Shevra and synagogue calls me Izzy. We're careful not to use our real names when we're out in the town after what we wrote on the wall. After what he wrote on the wall that time. What was it he said when he killed the second or third one? No, hang on. It was the night he killed the two of them together inside an hour. One straight after the other. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, he wrote. Or so the peelers said. It was that Jews that got me. Nobody could spell it out like that. Why use five letters when four is enough? And why go and get one wrong? It's easier to write Jews J-W-S than Jews J-U-W-E-S. Unless you're up to something, of course. Like fooling old Bill and getting poor innocents like us into trouble. There were loads of us down at the East End. More and more us pouring in from Russia, Poland, Germany, docking down on the Thames near Tower Bridge, looking for a bit of peace. They don't like us a lot over there, you know? Though London wasn't much more welcoming if you drifted out of the East End. Me and Effie came over together in 1883. Abraham was Effie's cousin. Abe was working for Feigenbaum, and he got us in as well. Jews, Ruskies, Poles... Them girls don't care where you come from, and that's the truth. They don't care where you're going, either. All they care about are the shillings and pence, and what they can buy with them. Abel Feigenbaum's a kosher butcher. You know, ritual slaughtering. Things used to be strict back in the old country, but here in London, well, they stretched the rules a bit. Feigenbaum's a shosha, and we're his helpers. He watches over the killing, makes sure we don't take any shortcuts. Abe's got his pole and his lanyard, which is like a noose. He catches the animal, leads it into the yard, holds it steady, pulling tighter on the lanyard till it falls down on its knees and starts to lose consciousness. Then I go to work with my knife. I slit its throat and open its belly, empty out the unclean innards, then I grab a big wooden spatula and sweep the blood and guts into the drains. Then me and Abe help Effie lift the carcass up onto the block, and Effie quarters it with his cleaver. The cow, bull, or sheep doesn't know what's hit it. It's there and gone in the space of 20 seconds. The animals make a lot of noise coming in. Some lads say they smell the blood, but once the lanyard's on, that's the end of it. Effie keeps on chopping, sectioning the meat. Then the edible pieces go into the shed for ritual tree burning. We don't have anything to do with that. It's Abel Feigenbaum's job to strip off the forbidden fat and remove the veins. After that, the meat's hung up to drain out of all the blood. Then it gets washed, soaked in warm water for an hour, and then finally it gets salted. Oh, sure. Feigenbaum wasn't out with us that night, of course. It was no ritual soldering. There was no ritual treebering either. This was a different sort of butchering job altogether. When Mary Jane and her beau decide to leave the Alma, Abe says, quick lads, let's follow them. Just in case. Case of what? 
says I. Don't play dumb, he says. You know what I'm on about. Let's take my wages on it. He's gonna do her. You think that's him? Says Effie. Why not? Says Abe. Could be anyone. The peelers are saying. The pub's full of blokes, I threw in. We can't follow them all, can we? We can follow her, though, Abe says, draining his beer. It'll be a laugh, if nothing else. See what Mary Jane gets up to. As if we didn't know. We trailed them through the streets as far as Miller's Court, which is halfway up Dorset Street, where Mary Jane and the fella went to a room on the ground floor. It must have been her room, I suppose. The paper said so afterwards, though she didn't have no key. She pushed her hand in through a broken window next to the door, then opened it from the inside. Give them a couple minutes, Abe says, then we'll check them out. A few minutes came and went. Then, Abe crept up beneath the window and glanced in through the broken glass. That was bloody quick, he says, coming back. The cove was already pulling up his pants. The words were hardly out of his mouth when the door flew open and out came the customer. He looked left, then right, then he bolted out of the court and into Dorset Street. And right behind him, Mary Jane was at the door. Fucking sixpence, she screamed. A measly fucking sixpence. She slammed the door hard, and more glass fell out of the window. Me and Effie grinned. Hand over your wages, Abe, I said. You lost the bet. He wasn't having it. The nights got young, he said. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll buy you both a beer. We spent the next few hours in the Queen's Head. The Shabbat starts on Friday night, but this is London, not the New Jerusalem, which is what we called Yawistov when we living there. God, I hope I pronounced that right. In Whitechapel, we start the Shabbat first thing on Saturday morning, and we carry on till nightfall. Sometimes, Friday night, we don't go to bed at all, Saturday being a day of rest and abstemiousness. If you know your way around the East End, there's always some place open where you can get a drink or grab a bite to eat. And that's what we did. The idea of following Mary Jane around had lost its shine by then. We had a last drink in the Britannia in the early hours of the morning. Then we rolled onto Dorset Street, getting ready to go home. It was as we were walking past Miller's Court that something happened. Abe heard a shout, or said he did, and he dashed inside the court to see what was going on. Bloody peeping Tom, says I. He wants to see what that girl's up to. I hadn't finished speaking when Abe comes running out. Fuck me, he says, and he threw up into the pavement. It's him! It's him! If he hadn't been sick, I wouldn't have believed him. I'd have thought he was taking a piss. But as soon as we stepped inside the court, I knew that something wasn't right. Mary Jane's window was lit up bright, though covered with a sheet or something. There was an orange glow like flames inside the room. I opened my mouth, and I would have shouted fire, but... Effie pulled back from the window pane and said, It's him. It's Jack the Bloody Ripper. He's more of a butcher than us lot. He's killed her and gutted her. We heard the lifting of the latch and the door open. What were we to do? Follow him? Try to catch him? That was not what happened. As a man stepped out of Miller's court, Abe pulled the lanyard loose from his belt and threw it over the bastard's head. Give him one, Izzy, he hissed. And that's what I'd done. I pulled my knife out of his sheath 
and I jabbed it in his guts. He tried to go down, but Abe held him up by the rope. Throat, he muttered, and so I slit his throat. He was dead by then, so Abe let him fall on the pavement, and he used the lanyard to drag the body back inside Miller's court. There was light from the fire in Mary Jane's room. Not much, as I said before, but enough to do what had to be done. I ripped him open, turned him over, and all the awful blood and guts came tumbling out. Effie used his cleaver to open a grid, and me and Abe used our boots to push the mess down the drain. While we were busy doing that, Effie had his head off and chopped him up into bits with his cleaver. The meat went down the drain as well. It was all done and dusted in three minutes flat. Then we got out of there as quick as we could. No one ever suspected what had happened. They never asked us any questions. Why would they? He'd always got away with it before. They think he got away with it this time, too. There was just one question ringing through our minds. How the fuck was he? Abe said, as they left me at the corner of Castle Alley. None of us knew, and none of us would ever know. There was only one thing I was certain of. He won't be sending us no letter from hell now, will he? It was five days later, Wednesday lunchtime, when this man came wandering down by Feigenbaum's yard in Spitalfields. He was touting for business, and we'd finished up for the day, more or less. We'd been slaughtering sheep since six o'clock that morning, and the boss had told us to go and get something to eat, so there we were, three butchers headed for the ten bells, each one with the tools of his trade in his hand, bowl and lanyard knife and cleaver. We never leave our tackle lying around for fear they'll get next. Hey lads, this photograph fella calls out, stopping his handcart. You want a picture tip? Why would we want a picture? Abe says back at him. You might be celebrating something, the man says, quick and sharp. Well, we looked at each other and Effie smiled. Celebrate, he says. Then he says, how much? A tin tack? Six pence. One shilling with a nice brass frame. Go on. It's only four pence each, or I'll do three for two bob. Just one will do, Abe said, for nine pence, with a frame. You're on, the photographer said as he slopped some stuff on a sheet of tin and slapped it into his camera. Three pence each to celebrate the death of Jack the Ripper. It is cheap at that price. Now there is an author's note. I have been collecting Victorian photographs for many years. Positive images on metal or glass plates, so-called hard images, i.e. daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, and ferrotypes, became a rarity as cheap paper photographs conquered the market in the 1860s and 1870s. Each hard image was unique, as there was no negative involved and no copy could be made except by re-photographing the original plate. I have always been fascinated by these rare one-off efforts, especially those that were sometimes made in the street by wandering photographers. What was so important about the occasion that it merited a photograph? Often, too, the photograph itself poses another enigma. What exactly was the occasion? One day in 1994, I found an unusual ferrotype, a cheap photographic process made by spreading a silver halide emulsion on a sheet of tin in an East London street market. It was in poor condition, almost beyond redemption, but the image was just about visible. I was entranced and puzzled, so I bought it. 
I checked my catalog this morning and noted that I had paid the princely sum of five pounds for it. Cheap though it was, and battered as it is, the image made an impression on me which has never diminished, for reasons which I will explain in the course of the story. The question I asked myself was this. Why would three young butchers pose with their tools of slaughter for a wandering street photographer? What special event were they celebrating? It was probably made in 1888 or shortly afterwards. And there is actually a picture that was included with this uh, of the exact prototype they bought, which will be shown off in my YouTube video of this particular episode. Cough, cough, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Please go check out the YouTube channel that I have, because remember, 500 little phantoms and I tell my own little scary story. Self-plug aside, I do apologize for mixing up the story a little bit. It just made more sense recording it that way. However, reading it definitely makes more sense to read the author's note first. <laughs> but different mediums, you know. Regardless, I do hope that you enjoyed that story, as it was the second of our Halloween special. And quite frankly, after seeing the picture that the author included, I'm inclined to agree with his question. Why indeed would three butchers pose with their tools of trade for a wandering street photographer? <laughs> the question may never get an answer, but honestly, if it ever comes out, if at any point there's an answer to this one question, I think that I would be extremely satisfied just to have something, whether it's as whether it's as fantastical as, you know, slaying Jack the Ripper, or if it's just a simple celebration of, hey, we just got done off a hard day's work, it's still a fascinating piece of history that has been lost to time, and that's saddening to me. Gosh, this is going on a fucking tangent. I'm not even looking at my script right now. I should be looking at my script. <laughs> it's only human to be afraid of being forgotten. Anyways. Our final story for the night is actually my favorite so far out of the book. Save the best for last, as they say. And this one definitely makes that cut. Without further ado, let's jump into Ripper Familias by Terry Davis and Patrick Jones. 10th of April, 1912. Three generations of Kingsford men boarded the RMS Titanic on a crystalline April morning. John, the patriarch, who insisted that he was a physician and demanded to be called Dr. Kingsford, had been released from Bedlam Royal Hospital, the infamous asylum for the mentally ill, the day before. His son, Will, called him father. His grandson, Reggie, called him Grandfather John. No diminutive endearments, no dab, pops, or grandpa for the Kingsford men. It was Reggie's first time on an ocean liner, and the first time he'd ever set eyes on his grandfather. For all three, it was their last day in England. Earlier, as they stood outside the Bedlam gates, Reggie hoped it was the last time he would endure the sight of Grandfather John's rotten teeth. They were not only the same color as the rusted iron bars of Bedlam's gate, they had chipped and broken into points reminiscent of the rusty spears that composed the fence surrounding the 600-year-old edifice. Reggie wanted to like his grandfather, and he was resolved to triumph over his sometimes impatient and even unkind nature, and kill Grandfather John with kindness. Reginald, help me with my bag. Most of their bags resided in the ship's cargo area, but Grandfather insisted a small black leather bag he purchased the night before needed to stay with him. His right hand shook so much that it was hard for him to carry it for a long time. Happy to help, Reggie shouted. 
Good to know, Grandfather said. I might need your help even more on this voyage. Anything you need, his grandfather's smile, ugly as it was, still bright in the morning. The wizened old man struggled on his cane in the crush of men, women, and children walking up the gangway. The Kingsfords stood in the middle of the queue, the waiting line of 1,300 people who had booked passage on the Titanic's maiden voyage. Boarding the ship among this many people was an ordeal. Don't worry, Grandfather John, Reggie said. I'll hold on to you. The ears in Bedlam had taken a heavy toll. The old man looked like a wraith in his black trousers and black cape. What a nice son you've raised, Will, the old man said to Reggie's father. He'll be much stronger and courageous son than the one I raised. Will let the insult pass, as he had others earlier in the day. Reggie thought Grandfather John would have been ecstatic to be out of that awful dark place and free under the sun and the blue sky among other free people with happy faces and voices raised on this day replete with color. The fragrance of the sea and the pull of the outgoing tide toward a new world full of the gunwales of new chances. Instead, he seemed angry. The three reached the top of the gangplank stepped onto the boat deck, and followed a crewman's directions to the stairway to sea deck, three decks below, and their second-class cabin. Ahead of them, a bevy of young women and girls in great high spirits lined the rail in the space between two of the ship's twenty wooden lifeboats, which hung from divots, cranes that lowered them into the water. It seemed to Reggie that the lifeboats framed the girls like a painting, the title of which might be High Hopes. They were laughing and pointing westward and proclaiming visions of the Statue of Liberty. New York will be like London, the grandfather snarled, full of harlots. He lowered his voice, then he bent to Reggie, but the vicious tone remained. Look at them, Reginald. They are vile and sinful. They'll go to hell. Reggie looked. Nothing about them seemed to him vile, sinful, or hell-bent. The rush of people swept the Kingsbirds toward the young women. The only quality that Reggie thought anyone might judge risque about them was that they wore too much makeup for the girls their age. As he passed, Reggie was stricken by their fragrance. He struggled against the current of people to remain in their aura, but he carried on. Reggie looked back at an older girl whose red hair contrasted so boldly against her white dress that she seemed to glow. She seemed to be looking at him too. He waved at her briefly before his grandfather jerked his hand down. Reggie looked down and saw his grandfather's gnarled left hand around his forearm. It was like being caught in the claws of the bird of prey. You like her? Grandfather John asked. Don't bother. Women like that are vile. No, he replied with a shrug. This was a lie as colossal as the shit. Reggie liked that she smiled at him, and he liked girls in general. He hated that they didn't like him. The girls at school teased him because he was short. They called him a daddy's boy because his father walked him to and from school. Yes, there were girls who didn't tease him, and who were even friendly at times. But he was afraid to take the chance of talking to them. Something thick and dark in him wanted to hate girls and to hate his father too. Yet, how could he blame his father for wanting to protect him from the pains of the world? The man had lost his wife to tuberculosis and his father to madness. Of course, he wanted to protect his son. But still, Reggie hated his father, who seemed at times to love his drink more than his son. Reggie didn't understand why the best part of him couldn't prevent the worst part of him from rising up out of the dark fissure where it lived in his thoughts. 
he reflected upon these things in the tumult of fellow passengers, and saw in his mind the spikes that made up Bedlam's Gate. As they approached the stairway that would take them down into the ship, Reggie's grandfather spoke again. The world is full of harlots, and this time his father interrupted. That's enough, father. Will snapped and shook his head in revulsion. Reggie noticed his grandfather exhibited a similar curled lip expression of disgust, although his was directed at the glowing red-haired girl. Don't let him out of your sight tonight, Will whispered to Reggie as they sat at the dinner table. Maybe tired of his father's insults, Will had walked briskly with Reggie, leaving Grandfather John steps behind but in sight. Why do we have to watch him? Reggie whispered back. Before his father could answer, a rare sound shocked their ears. Grandfather John laughing loud and long. Reggie turned to see his grandfather twirling his cape like a loquacious raven among the passengers entering the dining area. The bilious old man, who had spoken of the young women with such viciousness earlier, seemed empty of bile and unburdened of years. He led a laughing party of women to the dinner table. Why, ladies, I'd love to tell you about my skills with the scalpel. Grandfather John crooned as he held out chairs for the women at the dinner table. But sadly, my career as a surgeon ended too soon. So just a few tales. Reggie stared at his grandfather in amazement as he spoke non-stop through the first two courses, telling tales as tall as the ship itself. Only when the entree was served did he pause and let others speak. The old charmer poked Reggie with his shaking right hand, then with his left he held the steak knife and pointed with it across the crowded dining room. There was the red-haired girl. He dipped his head to Reggie and whispered, She's chasing you. Reggie blushed, his face as red as the rare steak the waiter sat in front of his grandfather. Grandfather John smiled broadly as he steadied his right hand to pick up his fork, held the steak with it, and sliced open the meat. The red blood gushed onto the white plate. This reminds me of an operation. His grandfather began another story. Why was he telling stories, and why didn't father stop him? The Kingsfords were butchers. His father made a good living, and Reggie apprenticed in his shop. Grandfather John raised his voice. I developed this shaky hand, he said. It could still make an incision, but not perform the full operation. He lowered the fork then, raised the knife toward the red roses in the center of the table, and held it steady as the table itself. I believe I've become proficient enough in my other hand, however, to return to work in America. He leaned forward, maneuvered the knife in the manner of an orchestra conductor with his baton, then cut the stem of one of the roses with a turn of a hand. He set the knife beside his plate, picked up the rose, flourished it as though he were toasting the table, and sat back. He gestured with the rose to the older woman to Reggie's right, and handed it to Reggie. Reginald, be a gentleman, he commanded, and pass this to the good lady. Reggie did as he was told. The woman smiled and Reggie blushed again. Reggie listened to his grandfather's stories and felt disloyal for not believing a single one. He knew little about the man. His father had only told him about his grandfather in the past year, when Will had been just a few years older than Reggie, back in the summer of 1888. Grandfather John's wife died. Just a few months later, Will had told Reggie on a busy morning at the shop for Christmas. John reached across the counter and sliced a woman's face. He was jailed and before long declared insane. As he listened to his grandfather speak, he marveled at how easily the man told lie after lie. He would have felt guilty, 
but believed the harmless tale hurt no one. Unlike the whiskey, Reggie watched his father, like most knights, down with increasing ease and speed. 11th of April, 1912. Reggie woke to the sight of his father asleep on a chair set against the cabin door. Wake up, father, he whispered from his top bunk. He needed to get out the door and to the WC down the hall. Unlike first class, second class passengers only had a chamber pot, which Reggie hated, and a basin. Will opened his bloodshot eyes, clutched his head as though in pain, then wrenched forth a great yawn that filled the room with the smell of whiskey. Why did you sleep in a chair? I told you, Reginald, his father replied. Your grandfather can't wander out at night. This is the only way, Reggie interrupted. Let him sleep with me. I'll make sure he doesn't leave the cabin. Will rubbed his forehead again, then frowned. He set his jaw on a look that Reggie had grown accustomed to since his mother died. The look said his father didn't trust him. I can do it, he said. The frown grew darker. Please, father, I'm 14. I can do things. Will looked at Reggie's grandfather, asleep in the bottom bunk, then up at Reggie again. That's what I'm afraid of. On his way back from the WC, Reggie met the red-haired girl. She wore a red dress, brighter than her hair. Over it, she wore a thick black sweater. It was spring in London, but it was icy winter in the North Atlantic. Good morning, fine sir, the girl said, then bowed. She had an Irish accent. Reggie stumbled to reply. He didn't understand how Grandfather John could say mean things about women. But then at the table charmed them so. He couldn't say anything to girls. He didn't know how. Cat got your tongue, sir? Reggie had no reply. He couldn't meet her eyes. I don't feel well, he said. He felt as though all the air had left his lungs. Feeling weak, he clutched the railing in the hallway. The girl put her right hand on Reggie's left. Seasick? Reggie nodded rather than outright telling a lie. It was the waves of her red hair, not the waves of the blue sea. I can't wait to get off this wretched boat, she said. It's beautiful, the finest luxury liner in the world, Reggie replied. I didn't want to leave England, but if I had to, I was at least doing it on a historic voyage. Perhaps for those in first class, or you in second, but fine sir. It's not so for those of us in the steerage, she said. We're packed in tighter than sardines served for dinner last night. And we're so close to the engines, it's surely as hot as the gates of hell. I saw you in the second-class dining room last night, Reggie said. How did... A lady never tells, she said. But I'll just say I have a friend on the crew who owed me a favor. Reggie wondered what kind of favor it was, but before he could ask, he felt a hand on his shoulder and heard a voice. Hell is exactly where a strumpet such as you belongs. He turned to see his grandfather, with his father a few steps behind. Reggie turned back to the girl and opened his mouth to apologize, but he could not give voice to his humiliation before she tucked her sweater around her and fled. She'll be back, grandfather said. They always come back until... His face took on a distant smile. Until... Reggie asked, but grandfather John didn't answer. Instead, he laughed like he'd told a joke. Nothing seemed funny except the feeling in Reggie's stomach. But this time it wasn't the sea making him sick. It was the sound of his grandfather's laughter. After dinner, where Grandfather John charmed everyone again, 
except Will, who showed more interest in his drink, the Kingsfords ventured to the ballroom and took chairs along the wall. Reggie didn't know how to dance, and his grandfather was in no condition to waltz around with his cane. Will, however, was having a high old time thanks to the generous amount of whiskey he'd consumed. Your father should be ashamed, Grandfather John said. His voice was heavy, dark, tired. He's having a good time, Reggie said. He's not done that much since Mother died. The old man's face went lax and his voice fell. When was that? Six months ago? He asked. Reggie nodded. The TV took her on the 5th of October, he replied. I was locked up for over 20 years thanks to your father. How many turns around Bedlam's ballroom do you think I waltzed in that time? Anger brought back the old man's bravado. But, Grandfather, Father said that you were locked away because you killed a woman in your butcher shop. I didn't kill that woman in the shop. I gave her an early Christmas present, Grandfather John said. For the first time, Reggie thought he heard something like sadness in the tattered voice. She'd been playing when she came in that morning. After my blade did its work, she was more attractive when they dragged her out. The music stopped and applause burst through the room. Grandfather John leaned to Reggie. But what I should have done was split her skull with my cleaver, he said, as calmly as if he were discussing the weather. From the ballroom, applause still filled the air. From Grandfather John, there was nothing but roaring laughter, even though the room was warmed by the dancing bodies. Reggie felt a chill rattle his bones, matched by a conflicting fire in his blood. He was disgusted. He was curious. He wanted details. 12th of April, 1912. After breakfast, Reggie and his grandfather walked slowly around their deck. Sea deck, as it was called the shelter deck. Unlike his words to the red-haired girl, Grandfather John spoke pleasantly with every person they encountered. He was most gracious with the younger women. One young woman, wearing a white hat with a brim nearly as round as a life buoy, found him particularly charming. She stopped when he addressed her. Fine lady, he said. He reached for her hand and she let him take it. He bent forward, gave her hand a dignified kiss, and straightened. My name is John, but my friends call me Jack. He gave a modest bow, and the two Kingsford men walked on. Jack? Reggie thought. They had walked only a few steps when the old man told the young man he was weary. Reggie looked for a place to sit, and then he saw a sign that said library, and he raced ahead. He had wanted to bring some of his books, but his father said they could take only absolute essentials to America. He reminded Reggie that America had books too. But Reggie was worried that America might not have his beloved Sherlock Holmes. He waited at the door for his grandfather and took his arm. Reggie led John to an armchair, then joined the people inspecting the books in the glass cases. He was forced to stifle a joyful whoop when he caught sight of memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. He loved the story of the final problem. Of all the scenes in his Holmes books, Reggie's favorite was the last scene where Holmes, after pursuing his nemesis, Professor Moriarty in Switzerland, falls to his death in the Reichenbach Falls while locked in mortal combat with the arch-villain. Reggie asked his grandfather if he wanted a book, but the old fellow was asleep. How this old man could wander off and hurt anyone or even himself was beyond Reggie. Now that's a mystery even Holmes couldn't solve, he thought. He returned to the cases and found more detective stories. Then he awakened his grandfather. We should get back, he said. Father will be wondering where we've gone. 
The old man grunted. Your father treats us like children, he said. Are you a child, Reginald? Reggie shook his head vigorously. Neither am I. Why should we let your father tell us where we can go and what we can do? I propose an alliance between us. A secret alliance. You help me, I help you. He extended his hand, and his young ally gladly took it. With no brothers, no mates on the voyage, Reggie didn't want to be alone. An alliance sounded to him like a grand adventure. He slid a chair across a thick carpet and set it beside his grandfather's. The old man seemed revitalized. He patted Reggie on the back. We've just met, he said with a smile. Yet I sense you're just like me, unlike your father. Father has been sad a lot since mother died, Reggie said. The old man's face went slack. His good cheer was gone. Dying is the only good thing that Harlot ever did, he hissed. Reggie was both hurt and astonished, but he had the presence of mind to whisper, Why would you say that about my mother? Grandfather John lowered his voice, too. You're young, Reginald, he replied. You don't understand women like I do. You knew that woman as your mother. I knew her as the woman who stole my son. I wanted him to follow in my footsteps, but he wasn't like me at all. Reggie didn't understand, but he became a butcher too. He said it in the rhythm of a question. The old man cracked his cane against the floor, and people stared again. Your father was never the man that I was. He could have been great. Instead, he was a disappointment. But you won't disappoint me, will you? When the time comes, you will make me proud. I know it. I'd like to. Just give me a chance. Was Reggie's whispered reply. Grandfather laughed. He didn't mind the stares. I plan to do just that. The newly allied Kingsbirds exited the library arm-in-arm. The ease that Reggie now felt with Grandfather John warmed him a little against the cold. But the old man tucked his cape tighter around them. At dinner, Grandfather John charmed the ladies again, and the men laughed at his jokes. Lil mostly drank his dinner. Reggie only spoke when one of the women mentioned she had also been to the library. He mentioned the fine mystery books there. Balderdash and rubbish those books are, his grandfather interjected. How so, good sir? One of the men at the table asked. In books, the police are heroes, when in reality they're fools. Reggie's grandfather looked around the table for support, but he was alone in this opinion. The other men soon joined in, defending the police, but Grandfather John would not stop. Even as the waiter placed his meal before him, he continued his assault. Not only could they not catch a criminal, I doubt they could even catch a cold. The women's laughter upset the men even more. Reggie liked his mystery books, but even though he'd only known his grandfather a few days, he wanted to love the strange old man even more. My grandfather has asked me for an alliance, Reggie said to himself, so it is time that I provide him with an ally. Sad to say, I believe it's true, Reggie said to the group in the most adult language he could muster. While I do like to read these books, they are, after all, just stories. Grandfather is quite right about the real police, I believe. A man with grey mutton-chop whiskers spoke from across the table. Young man, how can you say such a thing? Scotland Yard is the finest force in the world. Grandfather John pointed his steak knife at the man. Then why did they never catch him? Catch who, good sir? The one who murdered those women in Whitechapel. Jack the Ripper, they call them. 
The table erupted in conversation about Jack the Ripper, with everyone participating except Reggie, his father and grandfather. Will appeared distracted. Reggie knew little about the infamous murderer. Grandfather John had lived in London at the time, but he said nothing. He cut his steak in tiny pieces and ate it with a look of total satisfaction. Grandfather and grandson returned late to the cabin and turned down Will's invitation to go to the ballroom with him. Reggie felt that their refusal was a cementing of their alliance. They walked around the ship, again arm in arm, to the very bottom deck where Reggie asked the steward if he would show him the boilers. At first the steward resisted, but Reggie found within him a guile he had never realized he possessed and talked the man into it. Grandfather John was proud, and Reggie was proud to have an adult look upon him with pride rather than disappointment for a change. We saw the ship, Reggie said to his father when he and Grandfather John returned to the cabin. It was grand fun. I told you to be back in case there was a lifeboat drill, his father said. Reggie held up the ship's newspaper, which he'd also found in the library. The lifeboat drill is Sunday morning, the 14th, he said and it's a silly waste of time." Will shook his head angrily. Reginald, I do not like your tone. And father, Reginald shouted, I do not like yours. Will looked surprised. Reggie had never stood against him before, but then Reggie had never had an ally before. Young man, listen. Grandfather John finally spoke. Then treat him like one. Like one what? replied. You say he is a young man, yet you treat him like a child, Grandfather John continued. You do the same to me. If you want your son to grow up to be a man, then treat him like one. Will said nothing. He stared at his father as if he were a stranger, not a relative, then twisted his upper body as though he were in pain. Grandfather John pointed at the chair. There we have it. Sitting in a hard chair, guarding against us leaving, as though we were criminals. I was locked away for a long time by the foolish police and the corrupt doctors. I shan't be locked away anymore, let alone by my own son. Before his father could answer, Reggie spoke. Where could we go? What could we do? Will continued his silence. Grandfather John changed clothes and readied himself for bed. Reggie noticed on his grandfather's right arm was a tattoo in red ink of a five-sided object. He tried not to stare at the pentagram that had been carved into John's arm. Good night, good sirs, John said, then lay down in the bathroom in the bottom bunk. Reggie started up to the top, but his grandfather reached out and gripped his ankle. Reginald, you'll sleep with me. Your father can decide if he wants to rest his hurt back in a chair and not treat you like a man, or if he wants to sleep in the top bunk and show you the respect you deserve. Reggie climbed into bed with his grandfather as his father crawled into the top bunk, still dressed. Before long, Reggie heard his father snoring. Are you awake? Reggie whispered to grandfather. Yes, Reginald, I am. Thank you for taking my side. Anything for you, Reginald, Grandfather John said. Anything for you, Grandfather, Reggie whispered. Before he drifted off to sleep, he heard his grandfather whisper, We shall see. We shall see. 13th of April, 1912.
Will shook Reggie awake. Where is he? He growled. Reggie looked at the empty space next to him. I thought he was still asleep, so I left for the water closet, Will said. I locked the door. I didn't think he'd be able to open it. Reggie sat up. His right hand is weak, but his left hand still seems strong. I knew this would happen if I didn't guard the door, Will said. This wasn't my fault, Father, Reggie said. I did my part. It was you who failed. Get dressed. We need to find him now, Will shouted. As they left the room, Reggie saw that his grandfather's black bag was missing too. He and Will searched the boat deck, then he suggested they split up. Will fought the idea, but Reggie fought back. Don't you trust me? He said. Why? Do you think I'll get into trouble? His father took a deep breath. I think trouble finds you. Just like before Christmas. She started it, Reggie shot back. But his father looked as unconvinced as he had then. Reggie had been expelled from school for a short time. He contended that it had not been his fault. A nasty girl, he said. Told one of the masters that I tried to kiss her. It wasn't true, but they believed her. Grandfather is right about some girls, Reggie thought. He imagined he had a cleaver in his hand. He felt the weight. He saw the face of the nasty girl who told on him for trying to kiss her. I want to trust you, son, Will said. But it's hard because of your grandfather. I don't want you to turn out like him. I want you to be a good person and do the right thing. I will, father. I will. Reggie's father hugged him for the first time in what seemed to Reggie like forever. And then they went their separate ways. The lower Reggie went in the ship, the fewer people he encountered. In spite of the cold on the boat and shelter decks, people were more comfortable there than in the terrible heat closer to the ship's enormous cold-fired furnaces. No wonder the Irish girl had said it was hot as the gates of hell. He was about to return to the cabin when he heard a girl screaming. It was the most terrifying sound he had ever heard. He asked himself what a man would do. It was the world's easiest question. Answer? A man would help. He was more afraid than he had ever imagined it was possible to be afraid, but he followed the awful sound to a stairway door. It changed before he reached the door. It wasn't screaming, it was gargling now. He kept running, but the gargling sound stopped before he reached the door. He felt as though the silence would crush him, but he grabbed the iron door handle and wrenched it open. A man in a black cape held the red-haired girl against the white wall with one arm and with the other worked a butcher knife in her middle. Her neck was cut almost in two. Her head lay on her shoulder. Something white held her head to her body. She was bloody from her displaced chin to her knees. Even as the butcher's apprentice, Reggie had never seen this volume of blood. Reggie didn't see his grandfather's face, but he didn't need to. The old man turned and hissed through his rotten teeth. Finish it. Reggie went weak. He moved his feet to try to remain standing, but he slipped in the blood. He scrambled to his knees. His grandfather let the girl's body slide down the bloody wall to the floor, bent to Reggie and extended the knife. A garland of intestine hung over it. 
His grandfather dipped the knife and the intestine fell to the floor. It made a splat in the crushing silence. Reginald, you said you'd do anything to help me. He held the neck of Reggie's jacket and pulled him across the floor until his knees stopped their slide against the girl's legs. Reggie slid easily through the oily blood, but still his grandfather's strength astonished him. The old man knelt, took Reggie's hand, wrapped his fingers around the wooden handle of a knife, and held both his hands over Reggie's with that astonishing strength. He guided the knife down over the ripped, bloody dress below the girl's torn stomach. He lifted the dress with the knife tip and exposed her. He let go his hands, so now Reggie himself held the knife. This is how we finish them, Reginald, the old man said. First we rid the world of them, and then we rid them of their vile womanness. The first is the hardest, but you'll find over time it gets easier and easier. You'll do fine. You're just like me. The dark enormity of the thing he was partaking in finally settled over Reggie. He let go of the knife and gasped for breath. He crumpled on the bloody floor. He could not breathe, and he knew he did not deserve to breathe. Grandfather John! The old man bent to the boy's ear. Don't doubt yourself, my boy. This first part is the hardest. No need to call me John anymore. We're friends and allies now. So you can call me Jack. Enough clean white cloth was left in the girl's dress for Jack to wipe the blood from his face and hands and from Reggie's. He stood the boy up against the wall and slapped his face hard enough to arouse him, but still with affection. He unclipped his cape, dropped it over the body, and told Reggie to pick her up. The red-haired girl's body was the heaviest thing that Reggie had ever carried. Jack carried his black bag with a knife in it. They passed a chute in the wall, the cover of which said, Refuse only. Dump her here, Jack said. Reggie hesitated. Her blood is on your hands, Reginald, Jack said. I'm an old man, and I'm finding myself again. Trust me, you don't want to be locked up for the rest of your life. You want to stay free. There isn't much I could teach you. Terror pushed Reggie a small step toward courage. I don't want to learn, Jack laughed. To it, Reginald. Reggie knew he had no choice but to do the wrong thing. He steadied the body on his shoulder and lifted the cover with his free hand. The opening was just big enough. The blood on their dark clothes could have been any liquid, and the few people they encountered on the stairs paid their appearance no mind. Quite a voyage so far, was Jack's greeting to one and all. Will was on the boat deck looking for his father, so he wasn't there when they returned. They changed clothes, and Jack sent Reggie to the refuge chute on their deck with them. 14th of April, 1912. Will woke Reggie early for the lifeboat drill, but it was canceled. Reggie was glad. He wanted to stay in bed and pretend it had all been a nightmare rather than his life. He claimed sickness and stayed in bed all day. Will insisted that he join him and his grandfather for dinner. Reggie and his grandfather shared a terrible secret. The boy sat in horror of his own flesh and blood. But the old man from whom he inherited his blood continued to delight everyone. Even more than the deed his grandfather had committed, his words, You're just like me, 
terrified Reggie to the depths of his soul. A steward visited the table and described the sights they would see when the ship drew close to the North American shore. He described the beauty of the port of New York where Titanic would dock on the 15th. Reggie didn't doubt that everyone would be happy to leave the ship after a week at sea, but he knew that no one could want to leave more desperately than he did. Once they arrived, he would tell his father. One last thing I need to ask all of you, the steward said. A young Irish girl has gone missing. Bright red hair. The captain wants to know if anyone has seen her. No one at the table spoke. A strange silence hung over them. Poor thing, Reggie's grandfather said, shaking his head from side to side. But it still didn't conceal the small smile it looked like he was trying to suppress. As talk turned to the missing girl, Jack reached under the table, grabbed Reggie's hand, leaned to him, and whispered, You didn't finish. It was not a full meal, and I've been too hungry for too long. He let go of Reggie's hand, leaned away, and asked if he understood. Reggie didn't look at him. What Reggie understood was that not even the freezing North Atlantic was colder than the blood pounding in his veins. His grandfather leaned in again and poked Reggie's chest with his bony right index finger. Reggie looked up. He couldn't help staring at the blood dried under his grandfather's fingernail. His eyes followed that hideous finger as it moved to direct his attention to a girl at the next table. He remembered having seen her on deck and having smiled at her white hat with the brim, as big around as the bicycle tire. Reggie remembered smiling, but he didn't smile now. Will had drunk too much and fallen asleep with his clothes on. Here in their cabin on sea deck, his snoring was louder than the ship's engines. Reggie was awake but pretending to sleep when his grandfather struggled out of bed. Reggie lunged and grabbed a spindly old leg. There was not a way he would allow that man out the door. Jack didn't say a word, nor did he try to fight. Reggie knew the leg was going nowhere, but he wasn't paying attention to the lethal hands. But then, in the dim nightlight, he saw that they were in the black bag. Then the light caught the knife blade above his father's chest. A strange harlot, or your father, his grandfather hissed. You decide, Reginald. Reggie let go of his grandfather's leg. He was so afraid that he stumbled, getting to his feet and putting on his pants. He felt the old man's excitement and heard it in his rapid wheezing breath. His grandfather exited the cabin first. Then Reggie stepped out and shut the door. Not a sound rose through Will's snoring. The old man was so high on the hunt that Reggie had to hurry to catch up to him. Maybe she's in the ballroom. Should we look there? Reggie stumbled for an answer. What would a man do? Reggie asked himself as he followed, reasoning maybe he could still stop his grandfather's murderous rage. They heard the music before they reached the ballroom. It was lovely, and Reggie asked himself how anything could touch him so in this new world to which his grandfather Jack had introduced him. It was warm and bright inside, and there she was, across the room, leaning against the wall with two other girls. She stood out with wearing that white hat. The old man nodded toward her and looked up at the ballroom's grand wall clock. 
It's nearly midnight, he said. I should be tired, but I'm not. I'm alive again. I've waited this long. What's a few? Three bells sounded in. Three seconds later, the ship rocked one time. It made Reggie think of hitting a curb on his bicycle. Everyone standing was knocked to the floor, and even the seated people spilled from their chairs. The more physically able passengers gained their feet and ran for the door. Grandfather Jack lay in the doorway. Help me up, Reginald, please, his grandfather begged. It sounded like the bark of a small dog. Reggie reached down, held both his grandfather's arms, planted his feet as a fulcrum, bent at the waist, and levered the old man to his feet. Reggie supported his grandfather and fought against the current of people raging through the corridor and upstairs to the boat deck. He wanted to get back to the cabin and wake his father, but he couldn't do it with the old man in tow, nor could he have done it alone. There were too many people energized by fear for their lives. His grandfather found the energy to break from Reggie's hold and turned to let the flow of people carry him along. Reggie turned and followed. Sometimes the force of larger people was so great and the pack of them so dense that Reggie was lifted off the stairs. He popped onto the deck like a cork from a champagne bottle, so many of which had been emptied that evening and previous by the people in whom conviviality had lost to terror or deadly seriousness as they waited for seats in one of the lifeboats crewmen lowered from their divads. Women and children first, a ship's officer called. Some men, but by no means all, tried to fight their way onto the boats, but the crew and the more courageous men fought to keep them out. Only one or two old men found seats. Reggie watched as women, including the white hat girl and her two friends, climbed on board the lifeboat in front of him. All three of them are crying. A man in a uniform behind encouraged Reggie to board the boat. Children, too. Reggie spoke softly under the chaos around him. I'm not a child. I am... Reggie stopped when he heard his grandfather cry out in pain. Reggie turned and saw he had let his cane fall to the deck. Someone help that old man, a voice yelled. Reggie watched his grandfather reach up with his good hand shaking as though it were palsied. Help me, help me please, he whined. Two men helped him stand. He clutched the arm of the crewman who had helped the girls into the boat. I pray to heaven there's room for one skinny old man, he bleated. Reggie knew if his grandfather boarded with the women, it would not be a lifeboat, but a death boat. Before the crewman could help Jack onto the boat, the pathetic old man bent with the dexterity of an acrobat and grabbed his bag and cane. Reggie watched his grandfather's eyes glare at the girls on the boat. Pushing aside bigger men around him, Reggie tackled his grandfather like a rugger, knocked the bag out of his hand, and wrapped his legs in what he meant to be a death grip. What are you doing? One of the men who had helped his grandfather yelled. He knelt and pulled at Reggie's arms, but Reggie locked on. The other man kicked him in the ribs again and again. Reggie let his grandfather go, rolled away through the thatch of legs, and fought to his feet. He winced when he took a breath. Before he could take another, he was alone there with his grandfather, who stood over him blocking the night sky as everyone had run further toward the bow where another boat was being lowered. You're hurt, Reginald. Let your grandfather John help you. The old man worked to his knees, 
held the rail with both his hands and stood. He put his weaker arm around Reggie's waist and reached for the cane, which lay next to Reggie with his other. Give me my cane and I'll guide you to another lifeboat. Let your grandfather save you, my boy. Reggie released the cane into his grandfather's hand. The old man stepped away then. Even if Reggie hadn't been hurt, he would not have been able to avoid the blow. It came too fast. The cane cracked him above the eye and split the flesh. He was afraid he wouldn't be able to keep his feet. He was dazed, but he had the presence of mind to fall into his grandfather. Reggie held him in a desperate embrace and his eye filled with blood. It ran down his face onto his neck. Let me go, boy, the old man hissed. Reggie's cheek lay against the old man's neck. He was afraid the old man's rotten breath would finish him, but he clung tighter. The old man struggled, but Reggie held his arm so he couldn't hit him again. What are you doing, boy? Let go of me! The old man hauled him along the rail with strength that felt to Reggie almost supernatural. With his arms still tight around the old man, Reggie was able to grab the rail in both hands and hold him there. Let go! Obey me, you are my grandson, and I am not your grandson. I am nothing like you, Jack. Reggie stared into his eyes, and then ripped open the right sleeve of the old man's shirt. Reggie pressed down on the five-sided tattoo, one slice for each of the women butchered in Whitechapel. A ship's officer shouted, there's room for the lad in the next boat. But Reggie held his ground even as he felt the ships sinking into the ocean. Like Holmes with Professor Moriarty, Reggie would sacrifice his own life to kill off an evil menace. Hurry, the ship's officer shouted. There's little room left. With blood running down his forehead into his mouth, Reggie struggled to breathe, to keep his grandfather from escaping, and to find courage he never knew he had. Let him go! It was Reggie's father. Will ripped his son's arms from around his own father. Grandfather John fell to the ground. The boy must hurry, the ship's officer yelled. Go, son, Will shouted. The pain in Reggie's chest almost knocked him out as the officer held him tight against his hip and hauled him to the boat. He looked back once. His father was holding his grandfather by the collar and dragging him like a half-beef toward the submerged stern. The old man looked to be crying out for help, but all Reggie heard were the voices of the people waiting for seats in the lifeboat, and faintly, calmer voices singing, Nearer my God to thee. He was lifted and passed by many hands into the lifeboat where other hands received him and set him in the only space remaining. Before they reached the water, a woman speaking a language he didn't know wrapped him in a blanket. When they reached the water, the crew manning the boat began to row away from the ship. All around him people prayed, but Reggie thought not of God, but of the devil that was his grandfather John. Or was he Jack the Ripper? Who now rested at the bottom of the deep blue sea, his first step toward the fiery furnaces of hell where he belonged. The combination of these two historic events was rather well implemented in my humble opinion. It would make sense for the killer who, let me remind you, we still to this day are still speculating on, 
to have still been alive, albeit at an old age, by time of the Titanic. I also quite enjoyed the way that the sinking scene managed to capture the sense of urgency the people on board must have felt, killer among them or not. Like I said, so far this one's my favorite. <laughs> With that, I am done reading you stories for this wonderful night of scares. If you'd like for me to read more tales from this book, please feel free to leave a comment either on YouTube or any of my other socials, including Patreon, Ko-Fi or Coffee, and OnlyFans are all linked in the description. Don't forget to subscribe for weekly episodes. I know I already had this little reminder earlier, but 500 little phantoms and I will tell you one of my very own personal scary stories. And trust me, you won't want to miss that. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode of Phantasmic. Stay safe out there, because you never ever know just who or what might be lurking in the shadows right behind you. <laughs>